Welcome to The Virtue Podcast, where I, your host, Shona Virtue, unpack all things health and wellness, the good, the bad, and the downright disordered, so that you can start to develop your own strategies for optimizing your own health. And one thing we specifically do on this podcast together is look at these wellness practices using the biopsychosocial model. That's basically looking at biological factors, psychological factors, and sociological factors that could be impacting our health, as opposed to the biomedical model, which really just looks at physiology or physiological wellness. And so the biopsychosocial model is essentially about acknowledging, I would say, that all things, biological, psychological, and sociological can impact our health. Today, we're talking about stress, but we're talking about a physiological marker that you can use to really understand stress. And we don't get into so much the psychological and sociological impacts, so I don't focus on everything every single time, but we will unpack stress and psychological influences and impacts and sociological influences and impacts of stress. But I'm going to get you to use your imagination for this because I'm sure even when I deliver a lot of what we talk about today, you're going to be able to go, okay, cool. Yeah, definitely the psychological stress here has impacted my physiological expression of stress as well. So today we're talking about stress, but more specifically, ways to measure that. And one incredible way to measure that is heart rate variability or HRV and ways to impact stress and to increase heart rate variability, which is what we want to do using breathing practices. We have a lot to unpack. If you haven't subscribed, where the hell are you? It's a little Lara Bingle reference there for any Aussies that have seen the ad or anyone that's seen the ad actually. But seriously, subscribe because the aim of this podcast is to provide you with practical and pragmatic tools that are applicable to your life literally today, like now. Like you get off this podcast and I, I want you to walk away with something that you can use right now and implement across your week and across the months and across the years so that you can really see your health improve. So let's get on with it. As I've explained in previous episodes, Breathing is so much more <laughs> than just oxygen intake and CO2 expulsion, right? It doesn't just keep us alive. It really dictates the quality of our aliveness. Now, the nervous system is something that is autonomic. So we don't need to cognitively control it each day. Like if we had to do that, you know, like ticking tasks off a list, we... <laughs> <laughs> probably, I would certainly be dead. So it's a system that behaves for us. And I like to think of it as sort of like a big computer that's just running constantly. And it's in a room that we would normally not otherwise have access to or have a key to. But alas, alas, the breath does give us access to this room where we can make some amendments to the computer, right? At least some of it. We can kind of like push some buttons, turn certain parts on, turn other parts off, upregulate certain parts, downregulate other parts, right? So we can use the breath to up or downregulate nervous system activity. We can breathe really fast, <laughs> shallow breaths, and this stimulates the fight or flight elements of the nervous system. 
This can kind of like make us feel high in a way. Or we can take long, slow, deep breaths to down-regulate that stress response and up-regulate the aspects of the nervous system that are known to relax us. But is it really that simple? Can we just sort of breathe our way out of stress or into stress and like just be done with it? Well, we probably need a little bit more to the story. So if we come back to that computer room analogy, heart rate variability or HRV is a kind of reporting system that gives us insight into the health or at least the quality of those computer systems. So it's one thing to be able to like get into the room and push some buttons, but how do we know if it's having a positive or a negative effect on this kind of computer system? How do we know if breathing practices are really gonna have a good impact on our nervous system other than, yeah, okay, like I feel pretty good after it. Right now, I want you to hold on to that thought because we are actually going to come back to that. Self-report as a measure for understanding stress levels is what I want you to remember. Okay, it's super important. I am going to circle back, but let's just put a little mental bright pink sticky note onto self-report measures of understanding stress (laughs) because we're going to come back to it. Okay, but first we need to understand heart rate variability, right? Before we can understand how it interacts with the breath. We want to understand heart rate variability. Now, it refers to the variation in the time interval between consecutive heartbeats, also known as interbeat intervals or RR intervals. It's a measure of the variation in between successive heartbeats. This is where I want to flag that it is not heart rate. And often this is where people get confused, okay, because most of us have heard of having a low resting heart rate as being a good indicator of health or cardiovascular health, at least. Now, that's not always the case, actually. There are definitely some cases, bradycardia being one of them, where having too low of a resting heart rate is actually not ideal. But just for the most part, generally speaking, many of us will consider like, okay, we want our heart rate low, right? But because we're not talking about that today... Today, we're talking about heart rate variability, and we really want that to be high. Some of this next part I've discussed before, but we're going to go over it again because it's good to just be able to like orient yourself with the nervous system and hear this stuff over and over and over and over again. So HRV is an important indicator of heart health and autonomic nervous system function. Okay. Now, as I've said before, the ANS is responsible for regulating many of the body's unconscious actions, and it has two main branches. We've got the sympathetic nervous system, the SNS, which is often referred to as the fight or flight system, right? And we've got the parasympathetic nervous system, sometimes called the rest and digest system. We remember that from a couple of episodes ago, but you've probably heard it many, many times before. Some of the factors affecting HRV, heart rate variability, include age. Generally speaking, HRV will decrease with age. Fitness level. People who are physically fit tend to have HRV, but we're going to unpack that one in a second, okay, properly in a second. Stress, chronic stress or acute anxiety can reduce HRV. And this is important because you might be fit, but what are your stress levels? Could your fitness be putting strain on your ANS, your autonomic nervous system, such that you're not actually recovering from fitness stuff because your stress is so high? 
Sleep, so a good night's sleep can positively influence HRV and obviously that has accumulative effects. Health conditions, so health conditions like heart disease, diabetes, even depression can actually lower heart rate variability. Remember, <laughs> this is just a little reminder because I know that it gets confusing. Generally speaking, heart rate, we want, or at least resting heart rate, we want to be low, but we want a higher HRV. We want a higher heart rate variance here. So why should we care about heart rate variability? Okay, so autonomic nervous system balance. A high HRV typically indicates a more balanced ANS with both the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems interacting harmoniously. A low HRV can suggest dominance over one system over the other, right? And it's usually like the SNS, that fight or flight mode being in overload mode. Now, number two, cardiac health. So a higher HRV is associated with much better cardiovascular health and a lower risk of premature death, while a reduced HRV can be a predictor of potential cardiac events in some certain populations. Now, number three, stress and recovery. HIV can be a valuable metric to athletes to measure recovery and readiness for training. Now, a decrease in an athlete's HIV may indicate that they're not fully recovered and might actually benefit from a lighter training day or rest. So it's a really good tool, even if you're not an athlete, just to be able to know how your rest is, is coming along. Mental and emotional health as well, right? So a lower HIV has been associated with a variety of health conditions. As I said, we've got depression, we've also got anxiety. So it can give us that insight. And then of course, decision-making and cognitive performance. There are some studies that demonstrate that a higher HRV is associated with better cognitive performance and improved decision-making capabilities. And this is why it has become you know, a measure for a lot of execs trying to really make sure that they're at the prime of their cognition. So how can we get access to this reading. Okay, so ECG, electrocardiogram data collection. Maybe you've heard of it already, maybe it's happened to you. So the most accurate measure of HIV, the gold standard is through ECG. Now it's like these little electrodes that get placed on the skin and they detect the electrical signals produced by the heart each time it contracts. And this produces a waveform where each spike, called an, an R wave, remember I said RR, represents a heartbeat. So the time between these R waves, known as the RR interval, is what is used to determine HRV. The other measure, which is used in your devices, right, with the little, you've seen probably like if you have an aura ring, that little green light, that's called PPG. Just to confuse us all, we got ECG being great, excellent, PPG, not so accurate. Now, it doesn't mean that it's bad. It's still a good measure. But essentially, PPG uses a light, usually green, and it's emitted into the skin. Now, blood absorbs that light. So when your heart beats, there's a surge of blood, okay, that surge of blood flow, and it absorbs more light. Between beats, less light is absorbed. And so then this sensor measures the light reflected back to determine the blood volume changes and hence the heartbeats. I mean, it's pretty wild. <laughs> like there's a lot of maths and a lot of science and a lot of algorithmic genius, obviously in both mechanisms, but definitely in these little tiny devices. So respect the issue, however, with PPG is that you're relying 
on not just the quality of the device. So we've got like Aura rings. That's why I keep pointing to my finger here. Apple watches, whoops, just to name a few of the kind of popular ones. But we're also relying on the wearer. So I can attest <laughs> to none of these devices giving me very good data because I am a bad wearer. She's a bad wearer. She's a two-faced. <laughs> That's my little Seinfeld moment there. If you know, you know. Anyway, point is, I really dislike devices. I forget to charge them. My bones are really small. And so I either have to wear them really, really tight because they move around so much or too loose. And either way, you're probably going to get some shitty data, which I did. Now, if you're interpreting, something to, to really remember is that interpreting HRV is really complex. And I really do want to say here that any concerns about heart health or HRV readings should be discussed with a healthcare professional because you can get them to do a proper ECG, okay, and properly interpret these readings. Little short story time. I've used an Aura and I've used a Whoop and they've always picked up an insanely low heart rate. Heart rate, not heart, HRV. So low heart rate, like 40s, okay? Lower actually, sometimes in the 30s. And this was overnight, but still, I'm fit. I know I'm fit, but I'm not that fit. Like I'm not like world record holders beating their heart rate numbers, right? Now, it could be the fact that I'm like quite enlightened, but I doubt it. And the doctors doubted it as well, <laughs> okay? So I took this data from the Whoop and from the Aura ring to the doctor. He then gave me a proper ECG reading. And then I started wearing a proper monitor. And from there, we could get much better and more accurate data over a longer period of time. Now, it turns out that it was actually a hydration issue overnight. And it coincided with my BJJ sessions late at night. It's the sport that keeps on giving, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> What was happening is that I was getting super dehydrated. You get so sweaty in the practice. I'd get home from BJJ really, really late, particularly this is one place that I was going that was a really long drive away. I'd be so sweaty. I wouldn't be drinking enough water or replenishing the salts. And by the time I got home, I just wanted to get to bed and I didn't want to drink too much water because I didn't want to be peeing all night. So eventually, once I got this data, I then was like, I really need to take care of my dehydration or my hydration levels because it's impacting my heart overnight. Now, the great thing about these devices is that they can provide you insight and access to data that you might just have ignored or never been privy to. So now I'm going <laughs> to just talk to you about a couple of the issues with these devices. They are super spenny. Okay, they all charge membership fees and I would love, I would love to see their client retention rates because once you get access to this data, you can get kind of hooked on checking it and they absolutely know that, right? They are sending you notifications left, right and sending you didn't sleep well, blah, blah, blah. Have you charged your aura? And this leads me actually to the second issue that I have with them and that is that I think if you're a big data lover, right? If you love the data, if you can't get enough of that big dirty data, then I would ask you at some point, I would say you might want to actually ask yourself, how reliant am I becoming on this data instead of the cues that my body is giving me? Okay. Is it possible that I'm becoming somewhat disconnected from my own body and the language that it's speaking to me? And then I think this one will really get you. This question <laughs> will really make you think. Is this data influencing how I feel about my day ahead? So for example, if you wake up and you check that device and it's telling you that you had a bad sleep, 
what kind of mood do you think that it's going to put you in for the rest of your day? And this is like all data, right? If you wake up and you check your weight, how attached are you getting to that data? And then how is it dictating the rest of your day? Is your cognitive function impaired or do you think it's impaired because, you know, your whoop said that you didn't recover well or that your HRV was really low? Now, these are questions you have to ask yourself. Okay, there's actually no right or wrong answer here, but I believe in collecting data and then taking a break from the data to just reconnect to sensation and not being so obsessed with it. And then you can pick it up again, right? The only problem is <laughs> you've got a subscription fee and you're having to grapple with that. Okay, even though I think, you know, it would be helpful and lovely, there's no way that those businesses are going to introduce a little pause button on the subscription fee. That would not be commercially a very good idea for them. <laughs> anyway, just a thought. Dear Aura, dear Whoop, please introduce a pause button. Now, kind of contradicting what I just said, okay, because I love to do that. <laughs> Something that is useful about getting an HRV reading is that it can help us to understand something that we may have been really, really, really good at ignoring. And this thing is stress. This is coming back to that little mental pinky note I told you to make, that self-report. So some of us have very high cognitive tolerance to stress, but we're unaware of how it's actually impacting our body. And therefore, we actually may need these data points to keep us humble. You just have to make sure that you don't get emotionally attached to the data points, right? Another point that I want to make here is that yoga is often seen as a mechanism for improving HRV because it kind of gets bucketed into this mindfulness practice. But not all yoga asana or postures, right, it's asana, not all yoga practices, in fact, are designed to calm the nervous system. In fact, there are many things about yoga and the yoga practice that can actually bring on or increase stress and that sympathetic fight or flight activity. I'm gonna talk about that in a second when we unpack diaphragmatic breathing, because often we're told to do that, but there's a lot of misconceptions about whether someone is actually really utilizing their diaphragm effectively. If you're breathing, you're using it, but there's ways to maximize. Now, the interaction between breathing practices and heart rate variability is truly a very fascinating area of exploration in both clinical and wellness settings. And I'll mention just a couple of things that you may find interesting to dive deeper into, and I'll also link some show notes below, which will include some studies. So respiratory sinus arrhythmia, RSA. Now this is the term used to describe the natural variation in heart rate that occurs during a breathing cycle. Typically, heart rate increases during inhalation and decreases during exhalation. Now this phenomenon is a clear example of how it can start to affect that heart rate variability. And really this gets maximized in yoga. Now slow, deep breathing. So slow and deep breathing practices often found in meditation, yoga, and you know any relaxation exercises have shown to actually increase HRV. So breathing at a rate of about five to seven breaths per minute, which is like way slower than the typical kind of like 12 to 20, can lead to something called resonance frequency, where there is an optimal balance between the interaction between the two branches of the autonomic nervous system. Okay, that 
sympathetic, <laughs> fight or flight and parasympathetic, rest and digest. I know I sound like a bro- broken record to you guys, but I just want to keep reiterating it just so that it just really sinks in. Breath awareness and HRV. So simply bringing awareness to the breath without trying to change it can also influence HRV. Mindfulness and meditation practices, which you know, do often involve focusing on the breath, have shown to increase HRV, which is freaking awesome. Now, breathing patterns, different breathing patterns, so box breathing, alternate nostril breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, which we're going to talk about in a second, can also influence HRV in various different ways. Now, the effects on HIV can be individual. So I should mention that what works for for one person might not work for another. And this is why you have to play around with different exercises. There's also physiological mechanisms. So the vagus nerve, which I haven't mentioned yet, super important. And I will talk about it in another episode. I just felt like this stuff deserved its own. And you'll have actually requested it. It plays a vital role in that parasympathetic nervous system. And it's influenced by our breathing patterns, which is freaking wild. Again, this is like kind of like having the access to that room. So enhanced vagal tone or increased activity of the vagus nerve is associated with having higher HRV. Remember, high HRV, great. Low HRV, not so great. (laughs) Breathing patterns, especially those that emphasize slow, deep breaths, can stimulate the vagus nerve and thereby increase HRV. And then last but not least, chronic breathing practices. So over time, consistent breathing practices like pranayama in yoga might lead to long-term increases in baseline HRV. More research is obviously needed in this area and it really has a lot to do with this notion of like yoga being very different. So different types affecting us differently. Now, I know that's a lot to digest. (laughs) Let's just take that all in. Okay, because it's a lot. Next, we're going to go over very quickly diaphragmatic breathing before I go into the breathing exercise. Okay, and this is really, really important. So I'm taking my glasses off for those of you that are not watching this, but essentially... What I want you to do, obviously, if you're driving, just you have to mentally visualize this if you're not in a place where you can actually engage with this kind of exercise. But the way that the diaphragm sits, it's kind of like this umbrella that sits within our rib cage. It's partially attached to the spine, but it's also attached to the bottom of the ribs as well. Okay, so I want you to remember that because this impacts your your posture is going to impact how well that little umbrella can open and close. And what that umbrella muscle is doing is as it contracts, it changes the air pressure in the lungs. Okay, and it creates a force. It starts to pull air into the lungs. It helps us to pull air in. Now to exhale, we need it to go back to where it started. So we need it to go back to that relaxed position where it's in this sort of dome shape and when it goes into that position it then pushes that breath back out right because it's just about changing that air pressure in and out of the lungs now obviously there are other muscles at play here too your intercostals which are opening up the rib cage and closing them so this all moves obviously with the autonomic nervous system which is great a great thing okay but if we ever want to 
obviously get access to that computer room. By changing the pace and rate of that movement of our rib cage, that movement of our diaphragm is what's going to help us, aka breathing, is what's going to help us here. So <laughs> an important thing to remember, as I said before, is if it's attached to the ribs, if it's attached to the spine, your posture, the structure, right, of how you are essentially the shape that you're in is going to impact how much that diaphragm can move, can do its job. And one of the biggest disservices that we ever did was to tell people to aggressively sit up straight and pull their shoulders down and back. Because what this does is it overactivates all the musculature at the back of my body. It causes my ribs to start to flare and this makes it actually harder to take a deep breath in. So I want you to try and do it now. If it's available to you, I'm going to do it now from the couch. If it's available to you, try to sit with a big back bend, like really flare out your ribs here. Okay. And then I want you to try and take a deep breath in and then a breath out. It's actually quite hard to breathe out. Breathe in and now breathe out. Okay. Relax. <laughs> Find a more neutral position. So pull the rib cage down in a little bit. Relax your shoulders and almost slouch. Okay. So now I want you to take a breath in. But this time when you breathe in, I want you to feel like you're opening into the back body. So you're taking the breath in through the back of the rib cage. Okay. I don't know about you, but the restriction is not there. Now exhale and let it out. Some of you might be like, I have no clue what you're talking about and I'm definitely not picking up the subtleties there. Some of you may notice the difference, okay? And I urge you to kind of try this a few times. Try this in a yoga class because if you don't have good access to that nice, regular diaphragmatic breathing, that's going to have some kind of implication on the messages your nervous system is getting from that breath. That's going to determine whether we're pushing the right buttons in that computer room. A lot of people get told that lying on their back, putting their hands on their tummy is diaphragmatic breathing. But the last time I checked, my tummy was not my rib cage. So breathing with my tummy going back and forth, up and down, has really not that much to do with my diaphragm. So you could sit in this big backbend position and make your tummy go back and forward. And let me tell you right now, that is not necessarily going to be or elicit the effect that you think it's going to from this like diaphragmatic breathing perspective. I don't want to go on too much of a rant, but this is where posture plays a part. If you go into a yoga class and every single position you get into has a flared rib cage and you're in that highly activated back bended correct posture position correct posture being in inverted commas then you're not going to be taking an effective an effective diaphragmatic breath so what i actually want you to do to release all that back musculature is come into an exaggerated rounded position now that my little diaphragm rant is over, we're now going to actually do the breathing exercise. So allow yourself to slouch. In fact, if you can, like sit with your legs up and kind of like rest. Yeah, so really slouch. Nothing like what most yoga teachers or meditation teachers will tell you. 
relax. Close your eyes. We're going to take a deep breath in through the nose. And just hold that breath for a moment. Now just pay attention to, because you've got your eyes closed, you can pay attention to what areas feel a little bit restricted here. What areas feel like they've stretched. Hopefully you can feel the back of the body has stretched a little bit here. Okay, so in that, I want you to exhale and feel your back body relax. We're going to do that again. Inhale, feel the back ribs expand. In fact, I almost want you to take a deeper breath in and really, really take the breath down into the back of the ribs. And then exhale through the nose. One more time. Inhale, take the breath all the way in. Hold it there. See if you can take an extra sip of breath in. Really feeling as though the back body is stretching here. And then exhale. Okay. So while that wasn't necessarily a formal breathing practice, what it is hopefully teaching you is the structural positioning that you need to be in to get the most effective breath for other breathing practices. Now, this obviously doesn't apply to all of them. So sometimes if you're doing something where you're actually trying to upregulate that sympathetic nervous system, so you're actually trying to stimulate stress, <laughs> the stress response, then by all means, you don't need to worry about that so much because you're actually just trying to take short, sharp, shallow breaths. If, however, we're working on that heart rate variability, if we're working on calming our nervous system, then that is when we definitely do want to be considering that positioning of our rib cage, that positioning of our body. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but I would highly encourage you to spend more time in a slouched position before you engage with the yoga practice, before you engage with any sort of relaxation practice, even meditation, slouch for a moment. Allow yourself to really relax and try to breathe into the back body, spreading out all that musculature at the back. Then you can come back into a more upright position. But we never want to come so upright that we've compromised that positioning of our rib cage. Homework. Homework, homework, homework. Well done for getting this far. Homework tonight is to go and look at the anatomy of the diaphragm and the rib cage. Familiarize yourself with it because this is truly the key, the breath at least, is truly the key to accessing some areas of your health that wouldn't otherwise be accessible. And if you're serious about reducing stress and improving recovery, then you have to, have to, have to consider the ways in which you're breathing. And it would be worthwhile introducing breathing exercises and practices. But if you are not in the correct positioning, if you don't understand the anatomy of the breath, it's going to be very, very difficult to get the most out of those practices. And I'm going to tell you now that not even a lot of yoga teachers, not even a lot of meditation teachers are familiar with that postural positioning. It comes from, I first learned about it uh, through the Postural Restoration Institute and Luke Worthington, who first brought me that information. And it changed the way that I taught yoga, the way I wrote my programs, the way that I guided people through things. Because truly, 
other stuff can be a waste of time, can actually be doing the opposite of what you think it's doing. I'm being alarmist here, but I think it's important. So homework is to look at the anatomy, to understand, to familiarize yourself with that so that you can then start to think about it in your own body, how it impacts you, and then start to welcome in some more breathing practices on a consistent basis. Is that all I wanted to say? (laughs) I think so. (sighs) If you found this useful, please consider subscribing and, of course, sharing it. Now, you don't necessarily have to share it to social media, but obviously that really helps. But of course, just share it with a mate, share it with your family, share it with anyone that you think will benefit from understanding this stuff. And I guess the hint here is that I think everyone benefits from this stuff. Thank you. Have a good week. I will, I want to say I'll see you, but I'm not going to see you, right? I, I'll, we'll chat next time. <laughs>